One of the most helpful things I've learned is that I'm not alone. You're not alone. And as we open up to the right people, we'll see our communities grow bigger and stronger. If you find this video helpful, please support us by liking and subscribing. And if you know someone this video can help, please pass it their way. My mission is to help make the world a safer place by sharing with you the stories that saved me. My heart was heavy. I went up to the podium to share the words of institution, but I choked up. I have survived as an immigrant in this country by hiding my emotions and covering my shame. I did not want people to view me as even lesser by seeing how injured I was by my oppression. I only need one hand to count how many times I've cried in public in my 10 plus years of service as a pastor. I was always composed and controlled, but then it happened. Tears streamed down my face before I could read the passage in 1 Corinthians. My heart was broken. My people were trapped. I was trapped. Talk to me about that. I mean, I remember walking up um, to give communion. And right as I was doing that, it was January 2017, so, and the Muslim ban was the first thing that Trump instituted. And all across the country, people couldn't, they, they were stuck. They couldn't get through because these people were no longer allowed in. Um, and we knew how bad he was going to be. Yeah. It wasn't surprising. He told us how bad he was going to be. But when we experienced it, there's still this period of uh, shock. You know, um, we have enough trouble. And now there's more coming. And, you know, I needed Jesus to save me and people like me, you know, in that moment. And if the, if the gospel doesn't liberate, if it doesn't save the oppressed, then it isn't good news at all, right? So I was feeling all of that. I always knew that in my head, in my, in, in, but, but I felt it in my body. Right, that's the, that's the emotional response that occurred. I didn't know how connected I was to these matters, you know. Th politics, theology, things like that for me are always intellectual. They live up here. And in that moment, I realized that it's actually something that's happening in my whole body. One of the reasons I wrote Jesus Takes Aside is because in my experience, I learned that politics is not just a matter of personal opinion. It's not abstract. It's embodied. It's a, it's, it's a uh, result of who we are. Talk to me about that. Like... How we think about the world is informed by our lived experience. So my dad immigrated in the, 19, in the early 1980s, and he left Egypt. He's a Christian in Egypt, and he felt persecuted by Muslims in Egypt. And a lot of Christians do. So when he moved to the U.S., Reagan was president, an anti-Muslim, Islamophobic president. And of course, my dad thought that was the best thing ever because he was um, in opposition to the people that oppressed him. Mm 
So my dad's experience in Egypt as a religious minority informed his politics. You know, he's passionate about this because of what he experienced. I think he's misguided. I think that the politics that he has is against his actual body too. But that's how our ideas form. For me, my coming of age happened right during 9-11. So you had a lot of anti-Arab hostility in the U.S. And that formed my politics. Um, and I discerned that um, wars against people that look like me yeah. were wrong. Yeah. You know, so as an ethnic minority, as a racial minority, my politics were uh, um, formed as a result. What were some of the racist experiences you had to go through? Shortly after 9-11, someone said I looked like Bin Laden, which is, you know, <laughs> you it, it's comical yeah. because it's so absurd. Mm -hmm. They asked me if I lived in pyramids. They asked me, um, you know, camel fucker, uh, towel head, things like that. Wow. You know, sand nigger. Those are some of the language that we've, that I got used to hearing. And I didn't even know what was happening to me. You know, I remember when my, my grandmother died of a stroke when I was in middle school. And she, she lived with us when she was in, when she was in the U.S. Um, and my friends would come visit and they'd make fun of her accent or the fact that she couldn't speak English. Mm. Um, we always then hid away the, the different cultural aspects of our home and our, and our family. You know, we did our best. We, we knew home was Egypt, right? Like even in the house, it feels Egyptian, yeah. you know. Um, but then outside, you have to assimilate to the world around you. Yeah. My so parents like, did that. You try to become white. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't become white. But I remember my dad after 9-11 has like a, all the American flag pin, the lapel pin, the bumper sticker. We're, we're good Arabs, you know. That was important for him to express. We tried to assimilate as best as we could. We actually experienced shame about our culture as a result. Um, yeah. I didn't know that's what was happening. I didn't know that the reason I couldn't be proud of my culture was internalized white supremacy. I didn't know that it was racism. I just thought it was how things were. Yeah, so there's a chapter in your book called On God's Side. Talk to me about that. A lot of people think that when we talk about this liberationist idea that Jesus is on the side of the oppressed, that God is on the side of the oppressed, um, a lot of people in power who are called oppressors think of that as divisive, like God isn't on their side. But the question they need to answer is, are you on God's side? You know, that's yeah. the question. How are you aligning yourself with God, you know, from the very beginning, I mean, it, the, the, I hesitate to use this phrase because it's been weaponized so much, but, you know, the Bible is clear about this. Um, from the very beginning, God is liberating oppressed people. Yeah. The story of the Exodus is about emancipation, slaves being freed and a nation being formed from them. And throughout the Old Testament, God is consistently on the side of the lesser. You know, when Jesus, I was just, I mean, 
I'm just going to use last week's lectionary readings, the revised common lectionary. Last week I had Matthew 5, 1 through 12, and 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. That's just a sampling of the Bible. It's completely, for these purposes, it's just what was there last week. But Jesus begins the Beatitudes by addressing the lowly. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who weep. Jesus is telling his audience in the Sermon on the Mount, you're blessed even though you're oppressed. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 is saying, God has chosen the foolish to shame the wise. God is always using oppressed people, people lesser than, people with less power, as God's agents in the world. Because we come with a vacancy within us, because we're not filled with power, because we have a lack, because we're familiar with our own oppression, God can save us. I mean, if, if you're in a situation where you're comfortable, you're financially well off, you feel powerful, you feel self-sufficient, then why do you even need a Savior? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Get in touch with your pain and your suffering. Now, a lot of Christians uh, psychologize this meaning, this, this idea. And so, and I, and I do think that matters. You know, if you're anxious or depressed or um, have any sort of mental illness, I think, it's, I think that that's an oppression in its own right, and I think God saves you too and wants to fill you up too. I think that matters. But the point of Christianity isn't just good feelings and psychological well-being, although they, those are parts of it, right? There has to have a material outcome. Um, it actually has to make our lives better. Um, and free us from the things that oppress us. And so we have to get in touch with our own oppression. And then look to the people who are most oppressed and see how God can work in their lives and in the world around them. I had a professor once tell me that sin is anything that is not, that which is not life-giving. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Because we're either giving life or we're taking it. Yeah. And death is the wage of sin, as Paul writes. And so where death happens, that's the ultimate expression of oppression is death. Where death happens is where sin is. And Jesus came to destroy death and thus oppression. Um, in the Bible, we often read about salvation. But a better way to translate that is liberation, freedom from oppression, from death. That's the gospel. And somehow Christians have largely missed that. Somehow Christians have made themselves into like a political voting block that acts in its own interests yeah. um, and is afraid of things like reproductive health, trans rights, you know, is afraid of immigrants. These terrible, awful things. Um, so Christians get a reputation for themselves as not being on the side of the oppressed, but rather being the oppressors themselves. Yeah. And so the question oppressors must ask is, how can we be on God's side? Yeah. Because God is here to liberate and free the lowly. You know, it is all over the Bible. Yeah. It's in the Torah. It's in the writings. 
It's in the history. It's in the New Testament, all over the Gospels. And even in Paul's letters, you see it. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's what I was... In that chapter, we're talking about the theological justification for being willing to make political commitments. It's because God is on the side of the oppressed. That's what informs our politics. You know, it's not enough to take a side. When I say Jesus takes a side, I don't just mean have an opinion about a political issue. Because there's a lot of conservatives who say, yeah, I, I'm not afraid of political commitments. Yeah. I have strong opinions. Mm -hmm. But it's not just about having opinions. It's about having anti-oppressive politics. It's about taking the side, not just any side, but of the oppressed. Yeah. Circle of Hope. The cell church where I pastor was not always a welcoming place for the LGBTQIA people. As a 21-year-old cell leader, I knew this, but I still wanted to welcome everyone. Um, I wanted to help recommend people to our covenant. I wanted the church to grow. I didn't know that by including them, I was putting them in harm's way. But I admit that my lack of clarity and my naivete did exactly that. Someone asked me recently, what is one of your greatest accomplishments as a pastor? And I said, again, with tears in my eyes. I wrote earlier in the book that I could count on my hand how, how many times I've cried in the last 10 years of being a pastor. But in the last two years, I couldn't. I, couldn't, I, I, I cry every week. I cry all the time. I'm, I'm more in touch with my feelings. And I said this with tears in my eyes. You know... I cannot name this as, I am proud that I helped our church become LGBT affirming, but I cannot name that as some successful accomplishment because of the harm that I committed along the way up until that point. What kind of harm was that? We ostracized queer people. Some, they, and, 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 and in general, what they wanted was a clear answer from us about whether we were affirming or not. <coughs> and we purposely made it vague so that they couldn't find the answer. That's mind-numbing. And when they pushed for it, we asked them to step aside. And I played a part in that. I came in when I was 20 and 21 with no rational understanding of why we couldn't be affirming and include queer people. I didn't understand why we would interpret the Bible that way, and I didn't understand how it expressed God's love. But the pastors around me changed my mind. I thought, no, we can't do it. Was I convicted about it? No, but I was just trying to survive as a pastor. Well, what were some of their excuses? They just said, this is, we're Bible people. You know, sexuality isn't a part of your identity. It's not that big. It's not, it doesn't have to be what we focus on. Um, we have an identity in Christ, not in our sexuality. Even though they're celebrating heterosexual marriages, yeah. and even though they're celebrating all sorts of things, mm -hmm. For queer people, it's like sex isn't that big of a deal. Yeah. How we have sex isn't that important. I would later on, I would later go on to think, you're the ones making it important. We just want to be included. So circle wasn't welcoming, and I played a part in that. 
I let homophobia reign here. And when there was queer guys that were here and they got basically kicked out of the church, they, uh, the city paper wrote a profile of our, of our new church plan that was positive. And then they came out and said, well, our experience wasn't. And so they shared their story. And shortly after that, this church began its slow, by some measure, and actually quick by other measures, march towards affirmation. Our march towards affirmation doesn't pay reparations for the harm we've caused. But it puts us in the right path. We still have to do that reparative work. Yeah. And not just and any church that has become affirming must. What, what is so, some of the ways that they can say sorry? Yeah, how do you repent? I think you just, a public apology at the very least. Yeah. You know, I wrote a column for the Inquirer summarizing this chapter. But by the time I wrote it, I had realized that I was queer. And I came out in the column. My parents read it and they were horrified. That's how they found out in the newspaper because I couldn't have a conversation with them. Yeah. It's easier to say it in public than it is in a situation where I would be condemned. And I feel fine about that. My sister told me, I'm sorry that I learned about your sexuality this way. But don't put that on me. No one has the right to hear our stories. They're ours. And we can share them how we want with who we want. In this process, which really started seriously five years ago when we were listening and eventually led to us leaving our denomination and the possibilities of our denomination taking our assets for doing so. Because we are no longer in the denomination and they have a, according to them, a right to the stuff. In this process, I remember I got so anxious when powerful people in the church, powerful families in the church, threatened LGBT affirmation. I was anxious worried. And again, I felt it in my body. Why did I feel this thing in my body that I otherwise just thought about? I thought I was just helping the church be loving, accept people, and be who I think God calls us to be. But why did I feel it so acutely in my body? Why was this not just an ordinary disagreement? Because I was queer. Yeah. I'm making space for myself. I didn't know that. I didn't know that just like my political opinions about anti-racism, about Trump, about war and so on, were informed by my body, that my theology of LGBTQ affirmation was also informed by my body. I didn't know that. And so writing this book, I discerned that. I realized that. The Christian church tried to kind of straighten me into a, into a straight man, you know, um, but I wasn't like that. <laughs> what did but, they do? Well, they give you... T the teaching is all you want is sex with women yeah. and all women are are people to have sex with. Mm. And so purity culture affects everybody and it is patriarchal. It, 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 it forms the heteropatriarchy. Mm. They make you into that kind of person. But I wasn't that kind of person. I was a different, I was different. I didn't fit in that way. 
And I couldn't tell the difference. I didn't know what was happening. Was it my heritage? Was it the fact that I was a child of immigrants? Was it my race, my cultural experience, my sexuality? I don't understand that. You know, I learned more and more. I, I thought something was wrong with me for not being attracted like my friends were. And I learned and I changed, you know. I remember growing up, my friends had celebrity crushes. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have any. Uh -huh. I didn't even understand it. Yeah. I had to, like, ask people, is this person supposed to be attractive? Because <laughs> I don't know. I can't tell if they are or aren't. Yeah. Because you're, some, you're demisexual. Because I'm demisexual. That's right. Um, I went through the same thing. Or mm -hmm. I'd be like, okay, that, that person's good looking. The end. And, and I was always accused of under-sexualizing everything. Mm -hmm. Because I was just like, well, why is nudity so... Or not even like, you know, why is everything so sexy? Or, you know what I mean? Like, why is everything so sex-focused? And I, I never understood it. And then it took me until my, like, late 20s to be like, oh, no, no, no. You're just over-sexualizing everything. That's right. I'm not under-sexualizing it. Even my... Personal relationships, because I'm, I'm outgoing, I'm friendly, I want to make connections with people, I love that. Yeah. It's often interpreted as like a flirtation, or trying to connect uh, sexually with somebody. Mm -hmm. But it's not, that's not even how I'm thinking about it, mm -hmm. you know? People will get confused about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's a curse that we have. Totally. 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 <laughs> um, so I learned that. I was trying to create a safe place for me. And at this point, like, I'm not cute with Christians who are not affirming. Like, they may as well support segregation mm. to me. Like, it's that clear, you know. And a lot of people say, well, most Christians aren't affirming. Well, then I have an issue with most of them. Mm -hmm. Half of Christians don't ordain women. Well, I have an issue with them, too, you know. At some point, you got to draw a line in the sand and say, no, this is not, this, our queer people aren't safe here. I mean, look at the teen suicide rate of queer, of queer teens, right? It's way higher. Mm -hmm. And then it's even higher if they grow up in Christian families. Yeah. So there's lives at hand. You know, my mother asked me, are you still a Christian when she found out? And I said, look, mom, are you still a Christian? Because your theology leaves a trail of bodies behind it. Death and violence and destruction. Affirming queer people doesn't do any of that. You know? The th so again, look to death and see where sin is. Mm -hmm. Homophobia and transphobia kills. Mm -hmm. Trans inclusion and the inclusion of queer people doesn't. That's why these people have to make very elaborate arguments about why education around trans issues and queer issues is wrong and ruining our children. They have to make up a lie about the harm it causes because on, on its face, we can see that homophobia is worse. You have to make an elaborate argument because the plain morality is clear. There's no mystery there and we know it. And so that's why you ask, what, what's their argument for being homophobic? Because they need one. They need to make sense of their bigotry. Yeah. Because on its face, it doesn't. Sometimes that bigotry is so woven into our society, though, 
that it becomes like obviously queer people are gross, you know,、mm. and it is bigotry、mm-hmm. that is informing our theology. So you start as someone who is homophobic and transphobic, and then you read the Bible, and then make the Bible say what you want it to say.、Mm-hmm. You know, but. If you relate to God, who is called love, your framework changes altogether, you know. And so we need societal changes. I was lucky enough to be transformed because I listened to the queer people around me and I listened to myself. But that isn't enough. I've shared my story with people, with regard to the racism I felt, and The homophobia I felt, and that isn't enough to change people's minds, who have commitments elsewhere.、Mm-hmm. You know,、um, homophobic people and racist people don't change their mind based on the experience of others necessarily, and I know that because when I shared mine, people just said, "I don't believe you," or worse, they said. I believe you, but I don't think that your experience reflects reality. And what do they do? They find brown people that disagree with it. They find queer people that disagree with it. That have internalized patriarchy, internalized racism.、Mm-hmm. And Jay, people like you and me, who are who are overseas immigrants or children of overseas immigrants. Because we assimilate so well to the culture around us, we're often pointed to. It'd be like, look, they get along in the world; they're successful; they're okay. Yeah. You know. So even in this church, I was one of those good brown people.、Mm-hmm. The ones that make waves, the one that ones that ask questions, they're the problem people.、Mm-hmm. You know. Someone actually recently told me that. You know, I I I I couldn't. Share my own experience of racism because it made our church's progress on anti-racism look bad. Like it was my job to act like everything was okay when it wasn't, you know. And there is serious retribution to telling the truth. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah, you know.、Uh, you know, Jesus says persecution will follow. I don't think that being an asshole makes you a prophet. Don't get me wrong, but telling the truth to people that don't want to hear it causes problems.、Mm-hmm. You know,、um, change is really hard, and it's painful. And I'm not cynical about the possibility of change because this church did change, and churches are changing, and things can be different. I'm not cynical about it, but I want to measure the cost and understand it and feel the pain of the process. You know, I felt it in my body so much so that I finally realized what was happening in my body—that、yeah. I was queer. After we did this work to help the church become affirming, you've been my pastor for several years now, <laughs> and before I met you, I wrote off the church. I grew up conservative. I was married to a conservative guy. It was a very toxic, abusive relationship. It was domestically violent. When I decided to leave, I lost two thirds of my friends.、Mm. 
because I should have prayed. I should have prayed more. And I, I remember telling God, like, I love you, but I hate your people. And then I met you, and this is even before you turned the church affirming. I didn't do it alone. Sorry, I no, you helped. <laughs> you helped. You were the first pastor that made me feel safe. Well, yeah. I'm glad that, that you experienced that. I'm glad that I experienced it too, because I finally felt like I was okay back mm -hmm. in, in, in God's cell. And so where can people, especially in the Philadelphia area, find who, who are like missing God but afraid to go back into the community? Where, they, where can they find you? Well, you go to my website, johnnyrashid.com. It's a substack. You can read my blog there. And anywhere you want, Johnny Rashid, J-O-N-N-Y-R-A-S-H-I-D, no H in Johnny. On Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. And you can get a hold of me. You can see what I'm up to, and you can get a hold of me. And I can help you pl get plugged into a church that I think might be a good fit for you as well. There's a lot in Philly that are good fits, too. Yeah. Um, are there, do you know other states, too? Sure, I could, yeah, definitely. I mean, Philly is my home, but yeah. yeah, I know other states as well. So follow me on those. And uh, one thing, too, you could do is if you follow me on Instagram at Food Pasture, you can see what I'm cooking. So that's a whole separate hobby of mine. I do so that. You do that, too? And you make me very hungry. Oh, yes. good. You just, you posted your meatballs the other day. Yeah. <laughs> I was just I like, love meatballs. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, let's get together and make some lumpia. Yeah. What do you think? Lumpia, yes. Mm. Let's do it. I'm down. I'm down. Well, thank you, and thank you for writing this book. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, Jesus Takes Aside. It, I, I feel it, that it'll open the eyes of a lot of people who are non-political. Sure, I hope <laughs> it does. Yeah, if you feel convicted to do something about the world, if you're dissatisfied with it, but you don't know how to take political action, or if you can, this is why I wrote that book. Yeah, it's very helpful. Thanks, Jay. Thank you.